just to let everyone know, there's coffee, tea, and uh, uh, sweets at the back of the room. Also water if you'd like to uh, help yourselves at any time. My name's Angus Orford. I manage customer service and corporate communications at Maritime Electric, and I want to thank you very much for coming out tonight. Um, we're doing a number of talks uh, across the island with respect to uh, energy costs, electricity costs in uh, our changing uh, business environment. And uh, this evening, uh, uh, Jim Lee, our chief executive officer, will be speaking. Also with us is uh, John Goody, our vice president of operations. And uh, Rob Vance is one of our uh, senior uh, engineers in uh, corporate planning. And uh, Jim's uh, talk will probably run in the order of 45 minutes or 45 minutes, and we welcome uh, all the questions you have. So thank you very much for coming out. And Jim, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Angus. Um, as Angus said, we have a, a presentation we'd like to make. Uh, last night we, we did this uh, up, up west, and uh, there were a lot of questions that came up, and people put them to me as I was making the presentation. And it seemed to work quite well rather than wait till the end because it does tend to drag on. There is, I have a lot of information here, uh, and that way we didn't slide past something where someone had a question and uh, then it'd be too far down the road to get it resolved. So if you do have questions, uh, please don't feel intimidated and don't hesitate to stick your hand up if you don't understand what I'm talking about or where I'm going. Um, what we'd like to do is talk to you tonight about a number of issues. Uh, obviously, rates is one of them, and it's it's probably the, the prime reason why many of you are out here tonight, to understand just why rates are rising. And that's what we'd like to do. We'd like to talk quite a bit on the energy supply issue. But we would also like to talk about a number of other aspects of the company's operations, a number of, of areas that perhaps get overlooked from time to time, and uh, just explain a little bit about what we're doing in those areas. Uh, just, though, to begin, in terms of, of energy costs here on PEI, uh, just to put a little perspective and a little framework around what we're talking about in terms of electricity, I think it's important for us to remember that electricity is a very significant component of the en energy budget on Prince Edward Island. What we've done here is just very quickly gathered together some of the costs from uh, the year 2001 for electricity, uh, transportation, and uh, space heating and water heating, which is primarily... Uh, light oil. And you can see that uh, electricity costs on PEI for the year were in the $100 million range, $103 million. Uh, transportation was just about, uh, just about double that, a little over double that uh, with when you add both gasoline and diesel fuel together. And uh, space and water heating is just, just a bit under it at, at about $80 million. And, and there have been a lot of uh, movement in prices lately. And just to put a, uh, a small graph on it, uh, where's my little magic pencil here, Angus? Thank you. What, what we've done is, is to try and get the, a feeling of relative price indexes of the various, various uh, major energy components on the island. We've indexed everything back to one on January of 2000. And you can see that, for example, electricity, which is shown in red here, 
Uh, it moves on an annual basis, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in terms of how the regulatory environment works. And, uh, but furnace oil and gasoline move uh, uh, much more uh, rapidly, and they move in both directions. Uh, recently, however, we've seen some dramatic increases. This, this shows where electricity prices will end up uh, effective the 1st of April, and then we have uh, gasoline, and, uh, but heating oil seems to have uh, outpaced pretty well everybody at, at about a 60% increase over that time frame. But back to electricity. Again, as I said, I'd like to talk about a lot of aspects of the company, but obviously from this pie chart, this is the big item. This is the big ticket item that we, we want to focus on here tonight. This, is, this represents the portion of every dollar spent on electricity that goes directly to energy supply. And when we talk about it going directly to energy supply, in terms of uh, how Maritime Electric uh, manages its energy supply portfolio, the vast proportion of that uh, is virtually straight in, straight out in terms of uh, its purchases that we've made from either Nova Scotia or New Brunswick uh, to buy the energy that we then deliver on PEI. There's a portion of it that we'll talk about, too, that relates to on-island generation, and that uh, relates to simply fuel costs that we incur here on PEI. The other components of uh, the each dollar of electricity are shown as uh, for the transmission and distribution costs, and we've lumped some costs in addition to that in there, such as meter reading, uh, uh, there's insurance expenses, things of that nature in there. Uh, in addition to that, we have uh, depreciation and amortization, which relate to capital expenditures, and I'll talk about that in a little while. Interest expense, which relate uh, there as well. And then these last two items, the blue, which is 4.7 cents out of every dollar, is, is income tax uh, that Maritime Electric pays. And 5.8 cents is uh, the return that uh, the shareholder received. When we talk about uh, energy costs, I would like to talk about three specific issues that, that are unfortunately converging on us at this point in time. And I've described them as the capacity crunch that we're facing, the impact that the market price for electricity in New England is having on prices of electricity uh, here on Prince Edward Island, and also oil prices. I think it's important. Then I'll talk a little bit about, as I say, regulatory environments, some of those other costs that I referred to, and some system additions. Then I'd also like to talk about where we see ourselves heading and the questions that we have to answer here on PEI within the next few years to resolve our energy future. But back to the energy costs. Um, I want to talk about all three of those items because it's really important these days with with the focus on oil prices and how they've dramatically risen, and there have been some fluctuations recently. They, there was a significant drop. Then there was a dramatic increase again a few days ago. Um, oil prices are definitely a component of the energy cost increase we're facing, but they are not the only component. If oil prices drop back to their traditional levels, this price increase will not go away because there are other factors at play that will remain uh, as as factors that we will have to deal with. And I'll talk about all three of those. Just before I talk about the details of them, though, let me just uh, put up a couple of pie charts here that show 
the sources of energy, both in 1992 and 2002. 1992, we purchased for delivery here on PEI 772 gigawatt hours. That's 772 uh, million megawatt hours or million kilowatt hours. That is about uh, each house, for example, would burn between or consume between 600 and 1,000 kilowatt hours a month. Uh, for the year there, we, we purchased and delivered 772 million. Uh, that had risen to uh, 1 billion and 20 million by the year 2002. But, but what I want to talk about is the sources of supply. Back in 92, we had effectively three sources of supply. We had nuclear, coal, and what I've called here short-term purchases. Those short-term purchases were simply purchases that we made under contract. At, uh, they were priced based on, on a formula that reflected both our avoided cost uh, and the seller's uh, cost of production. And we didn't – I call them system purchases because they weren't associated with any specific generation that we had long-term contracts for. Nuclear, we had a long-term contract in 1992 with Point Lepro, uh and we had a long-term contract. Both of these two contracts remain today with respect to a plant known as Dalhousie in New Brunswick. Uh, in 1992, it burned coal. Uh, the concern we had back here in 92 was that all of these short-term purchases were exposed to oil prices. Uh, if oil prices rose, then the price of this energy rose just about in direct proportion to those purchases. And that was, a, that was a major problem that we were concerned with and hoped to be able to address. Uh, the problem we have today is that that's risen from 68 to 71 percent. The linkage is not nearly as direct. Some components of this are fixed for short terms, but it still is substantially exposed to oil prices. Uh, this, this energy is purchased on the mainland and it is driven by a lot of factors in, on the mainland that include, for example, oil prices and availability of, of capacity that I'll talk about. Uh, the nuclear energy has actually shrunk as a portion of our supply. That's simply because this, the, uh, the pie has gotten bigger. We, we have the same amount of nuclear energy on the system, but the pie has gotten bigger, so the proportion has shrunk. Uh, that's fine. Thank you. Um, Coal-fired, this, this energy, in fact, is not today coal-fired. Uh, the energy out of Dalhousie is now provided by a fuel called ore emulsion. Uh, we've left it called coal here because ore emulsion is, is a unique type of fuel, and the pricing model used for ore emulsion is based on coal prices. Ore emulsion is a, is a single-source fuel. It comes from the Orinoco Valley in Venezuela, and it's best described as a naturally occurring uh, bunker or residual oil. There are no, uh, there's no, no benefit in, in trying to uh, refine it. So it's, it's uh, burned simply the way bunker oil is in boilers. But because there's not a big market for it, uh, the contract price is based on coal prices. So it's, it's a stable coal, it's a stable fuel price, and it's, it's a reasonable fuel price. Uh, so we're, we're reasonably pleased with that, but it's a very fixed amount, and uh, we, won't, we can't increase the amount that we buy of that. 
Now comes the most complicated slide of the evening. When I talk about the capacity crunch, I'll spend a few minutes on this. That's why I said this is going to take about 45 minutes and interrupt if you, if, you want, if you have a question. When I talk about the capacity crunch, what I'm talking about is the problem we have in buying energy. When we buy energy from Nova Scotia or New Brunswick, whether it's on a short-term purchase or a relatively long-term, uh, the same, they, they go through the same process. They simply say... We'll satisfy our own in-province needs off our least cost generation. Then we'll see what we have left over. And that's what we'll use to supply export sales such as Maritime Electric. The problem we have is that there's no capacity being built in the Maritimes. And there hasn't been, and I'll get into the graph a little deeper in a minute, but there hasn't been any significant capacity built since the early 90s, 93, 94, and as the system load has been increasing, the amount of generation that both Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, who are our sources of energy for that, for that large portion of it, the amount they need for their own purposes is increasing. So the generation which is left over off of which they supply Prince Edward Island becomes more and more expensive. They naturally reserve the least cost generation for their own purposes. And after they've re re satisfied their own needs, they move to, to the next unit to supply us. Now, what the little vertical bar charts signify here is the total installed capacity in the maritime provinces. And the various stripes uh, represent the various types of capacity in the maritimes, and they're stacked by, uh, in effect, fuel price. Uh, technically, it's called incremental production cost, but the majority of incremental production cost is fuel cost. So we'll call it fuel cost. And you see down at the bottom here, you have hydro. There is zero fuel cost to hydro, virtually zero. Next, we have nuclear. Uh, and this is, this is Point Lepro. Point Lepro is about 630 megawatts. And uh, the fuel cost in a nuclear plant, although nuclear costs in total can be significant, uh, the, the fuel costs are very, very low. Once you've built the plant, you better run it as much as you possibly can because all of your costs are fixed, whether it produces a kilowatt hour or produces a million. So produce as much as you can. And for, for, by way of example, the fuel cost at a Dell, at a Point La Pro is probably quarter of a cent a kilowatt hour in that order. Fuel cost, uh, the next biggest uh, chunk here is coal. And you will see that the amount of coal capacity increased right here back in 1993. That was when uh, New Brunswick commissioned their Beldoon coal-fired plant and uh, Nova Scotia Power commissioned Point Oconee, which is also coal-fired. Uh, coal costs today are probably 2.5 cents a kilowatt hour for the, for the fuel only. Uh, so we're going from zero to about a half a cent to 2.5 cents. In here we get heavy fuel oil. Well, heavy fuel oil is, is priced. The, the prices of heavy fuel oil are based on a, on a number of factors, but one of the real big factors is what's the price of, oil on the, of, of crude oil on the world market. So what's the price of this? Depends on the price of crude today. That could be anywhere from 3.5 to 4 cents a kilowatt hour up to 6 cents a kilowatt hour, uh, 6 to 6.5 when, when we see the kinds of fuel prices we've seen recently.
In here, we have oromulsion. That's when Dalhousie was converted to oromulsion in 1994-95. And as I say, oromulsion prices are priced just about the same as coal prices. That, that in point of fact, could be either up above or down below the coal. It, it, it's so close, it, it doesn't really matter. Above the heavy fuel oil, we have uh, combustion turbines. We have two combustion turbines here on PEI. They're located in Borden, sometimes called gas turbines. Uh, they burn light oil. Uh, diesel oil, furnace oil, is essentially what they burn. A combustion turbine, there's, there's basically two types, but just to give you an idea what they, what they are, they're jet engines. One, one of the two units we have uh, looks pretty much like somebody unbolted a jet engine from under the wing of a plane and installed it in this building in Borden. Uh, they're not fuel efficient at all. And the fuel, being light oil, is relatively, relatively expensive. Uh, so the cost of these units, today's fuel price would be anywhere from 12 to 16 cents a kilowatt hour. So you can see what happens. We go from virtually zero to half a cent to two and a half cents to four to six to 12 to 16 in terms of stacking. Now these two horizontal lines are the total system load in the, in the maritime provinces. This is the minimum load and this is the peak load. I should back up for a minute and I, I have to confess that what I'm trying to do here is talk to you about energy supply using a graph that shows nothing but capacity. And I'm really doomed to failure if anybody tries to challenge me on the precision of it because it's not precise. But it, I think, dem will demonstrate what I'm, the point I'm trying to make. What happens, as I said, is that Nova Scotia and New Brunswick supply their own needs first. So what's left over is available to PEI. Back here in the early 90s, in fact, because of significant uh, inter, uh, capacity construction and relatively flat load. No, ver, there was very little load growth. We, Maritime Electric was, for significant amounts of time, able to buy energy based on coal-fired units. So we could, we could take advantage of the relatively low fuel cost of the coal-fired units. Uh, we spent a lot of time on oil-fired units here. And there are varying degrees of efficiency in the various units here. For example, the most efficient oil-fired units would be Colson Cove that are each 300 megawatts, I think. Are they, Eric, Bob? Can you remember all of that stuff? <laughs> um, so they're fairly efficient. And then we right up at the top here, our Charlottetown plant, the units are very small, and they're probably among the, the lower efficiencies of, of oil-fired units. But... In low load hours, we would have access to this relatively inexpensive energy. Then, as the system load increased, we would be pushed onto more and more expensive oil priced capacity. And that's, but we did enjoy significant benefits in this time frame here from this coal fire generation and this construction that was built during a time when system loads stopped increasing. Unfortunately, a couple of things have happened. One is that the system capacity due to a couple of retirements and some low, low water years here has actually gone down in recent times, and the loads have gone up. 
Oh, by the way, I didn't, I didn't uh, describe this. This is the introduction of natural gas. There are two natural gas-fired power plants in the Maritimes. Uh, one is uh, Tufts Cove in uh, Halifax, just as you cross the, the North End Bridge, the McKay Bridge. Is it the McKay Bridge? On the Dartmouth side, there's a power plant there. Tufts Cove was converted from oil to, to natural gas. Actually, it'll burn either. Um, and in St. John, uh, there was a unit in, in a plant called Courtney Bay that was converted to gas. They put a gas turbine in and uh, com converted it to what's called a combined cycle configuration. But the problem that we're seeing is that because loads have increased dramatically in the last few years, we have gotten pushed right out of these relatively in inexpensive priced units. We've gotten pushed right up to spending most of our time on oil-fired and a good portion of it on pretty expensive oil-fired right up into the combustion turbine capacity. And, and effectively, that's where our energy is now coming from. So that has, that has had a significant impact on, pri on energy prices. And that particularly, we've seen that impact in the last few months of this, this, uh, this winter because it's been such a cold winter that loads... Uh, there's a lot of electric heat in New Brunswick, for example, so uh, loads were very, very high in the winter. So that's, that's what I'm trying to describe as this capacity crunch, the fact that the capacity surpluses available to maritime electric are becoming more and more expensive. Those, those lower-priced uh, units are just not available to us anymore. The other issue that we're seeing now is the impact of the marketplace that's been established in New England. The market in New England has been restructured significantly in the last couple of years in a way that has created significant opportunities for both Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Uh, the bidding process and the ease of access have created a new market opportunity for them. So, They've, instead of just looking at their production cost when they're pricing to us, they look at their production cost, and then the next step they do is they say, is, well, what's our op alternative price? And they say, if the price we can get in New England in the market is higher than Maritime Electric, why are we selling to Maritime Electric? So we're forced to meet the New England market price many of the hours, and that has driven costs up as well. This is, these are a couple of slides from the New England Independent System Operator, which is the uh, outfit that, that manages the New England uh, bidding process. This column here, these columns all represent various cost components, but the one that I think is of most interest is this particular column here. Uh, that's the price in dollars per megawatt hour, that, uh, the clearing price. That's what everybody who supplied the New England market got in each of these hours. And these, to convert this to cents a kilowatt hour, uh, just move, move the decimal to the left. So that's 7.786 or 7.8 cents a kilowatt hour uh, U.S. So that's in the order of 12 cents a kilowatt hour Canadian. Uh, the price isn't that high all of the hours. It varies by hours, and it'll vary by season. But this is what we're seeing uh, as New Brunswick's new option to supply us. So the incremental production cost now sets a base price, and the New England market sets the, the price equivalency test. And those New England prices 
have risen dramatically, and it's, it's been a new market that wasn't there before that has created another price barrier that we have to, to meet. Uh, by the way, the yellow just means that the price is subject to check. It's not something we highlighted. It's something that's, that's on the website. This is, again, just another. You can see some of the price extremes that, that occur, uh, $185. So that's 27 cents a kilowatt hour Canadian. As I say, we like to see prices in the 4 to 5 to 6 cents a kilowatt hour. So that's, that's the kind of glaring examples. And that, that's why you've seen a lot of smoke in our smokestack in the last few months, for example. Because rather than pay these prices, it's cheaper for us to generate, even on oil, basing at $50 a barrel. It's cheaper than, than paying these prices. And unfortunately, $50 a barrel is where it has gone. This just is a, a graph. Uh, the different colors just represent different years of oil prices uh, delivered in Charlottetown. This is Canadian dollars a barrel uh, for, uh, for bunker. Back when we began to discuss changing regulations with the government, uh, we expected oil prices to... We used a forecast of $29 a barrel. Uh, the forecast was simply a, one of the widely used forecasts that's produced by the Energy Information Agency of the uh, U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, and briefly, they did hit 29, but that wasn't the high, that was the low. Uh, you can see the kinds of prices, prices that we've seen through the past year, and then uh, as the winter came on and uh, uh, conditions in, in the rest of the world deteriorated as well. You can see the dramatic price spikes that we've seen in the last few months. What we see out here is uh, in, the, uh, in the winter, the supplier we normally use began to talk to us about uh, concerns with being able to continue to supply us. There wasn't enough supply available, so we went to look to get pricing from an alternative supplier and... Uh, that was the result of the alternative supplier. Fortunately, we didn't have to, to pursue that supply. At what point do you set the generators down here and start using the bunker at 12 cents? Do you think 12 It depends. Every day that decision is made. We, we price energy every hour of every day. Uh, so we price it like the day before. Some of it's priced weekly before. Uh, some of it's long-term. But we'll look at the price, for example. For example, this time of year, it would take us... What uh, about how many hours to start the plant, John, this time of year if the boilers are, say, six hours? So, so we'd, we would, we'd have to know at least six hours ahead and look at the pricing. That's triggered by the price on the New England market at that time, which fluctuates by the hour. And, yeah, and the, and the load. Yeah, but a lot of these prices are bid in the day before. Mm -hmm. They're hourly prices that are bid in the day before. So you can, you can set your schedule up that way. At, 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 at today's oil prices, that would be the case, but at lower oil prices, the threshold would be different. So there's a whole bunch of factors that we're always... Yeah, that's right. You don't really have any control. No. It, it, it's a real time-consuming and major job to just do the energy planning. And Eric McPhail, who's, who's here with us tonight, did it for years down there. He retired a number of years ago, but... For a number of years, the market changed, uh, 
and it became a very stable thing. We, we could predict things virtually months ahead. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's it's gotten extremely volatile in the last in the last few years. No. 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 Uh, the problem with water, although it, I had it stuck at the bottom of the grid, in fact, it's not used as the first dispatched. It's always it's saved to be used at the time of peak cost. So New Brunswick will, will look at their first, and, and there's not always water all through the year. Uh, the New Brunswick system tends to have water, a lot of water starting now. It started last week uh, as the St. John River melts. The St. John River is their, their major system. Uh, but they will res- they'll reserve as much of that water as they can because it's very limited in quantity. Uh, and use it in the peak load hours when their energy costs are highest. No, yeah, they won't. No. That. Yeah. Wind. Uh, actually, if I went back, you could see a little slice at the top that was called other, and there's wind, and there's a bit of customer generation and a few things like that in there. At this point in time, uh, probably 2% of the energy supply in PEI comes from wind. What do you think the max would be if they ever get around to doing it? I got it. I've, you're, <laughs> that's, that's in my plan here somewhere, <laughs> about 15%. Once you get beyond 15%, then you get some real, both economic and technical hurdles that are very difficult to get past. And 15% in our system today would amount to about, probably depending on the wind regime, 50 to 60 megawatts. That certainly wouldn't bring the price down. Just um, give you a better... Uh, well, a more yeah, it's a sta- it, it would be a very stable price because it's not... Exp- it, all your costs are fixed. Uh, and the wind is relatively predictable over long term. Uh, the price of wind energy, when you take the amount of wind you're going to, uh, energy you're going to get out of it and divide all your fixed costs by that energy, uh, these days it, it's, it's improved. Wind technology has been really improving. We're into the third or fourth generation of wind technology now. The, the units you see up there are vastly superior to the units that were there five to even five to eight years ago. Uh, but the all-in cost of wind units, even in a really good wind regime, is still seven cents a kilowatt hour. Now there are some federal government subsidies that are that are helping that. How long they'll be there, I don't know. Uh, but the true all-in cost is, it's still if if other prices were relatively stable, uh, it's still a, a little bit more expensive, but very stable in price because you've fixed all your costs. Or virtually all of your costs. We don't have any control over what the government's going to do here. For instance, Ontario is going to start subsidizing consumers at four and a half cents a kilowatt hour or something. Oh, they've been. Yeah. But that's really not of any interest to you. Well, they're subsidizing them. Uh, 
from my perspective, whether you subsidize electricity rates or not is really a social issue. It's not a, I, you know, my personal opinion is it's a dumb thing to do. <laughs> uh, it doesn't it doesn't do a lot for anybody. It snowplows a problem, and uh, you're going to pay it anyway, whether it's through your tax bill or your electricity bill. They wouldn't do it, but that that's a social well, policy the issue. Yeah, it, it's it's a very slippery slope to start subsidizing. One of the things that that we at Maritime Electric are very concerned about is <clears throat> what the public see as where the heck did this rate increase come from? Uh, we thought rates were going to be stable in PEI, and or, or at least that's the public's view, and so did we. Uh, I've talked about the three factors that have that have driven energy costs up dramatically in the last year. The that capacity crunch, the impact of the U.S. market and oil prices. Um, oil prices, we no, we never we never anticipated them. They were they were set. Uh, our our estimates were based on on estimates that were published. Uh, that were widely used. We, we don't claim to be experts in forecasting oil prices, and I'm not sure who would these days. But the other two factors, we did realize they were out on the horizon. But we expected them not to evolve this quickly. We thought that we would see the impact of these two factors starting to come home uh, in the year, say, 2005 or 2006, and that was one of the main drivers why we were, were, we were and still are, so supportive of trying to get gas-fired generation on the island. We had, we had anticipated we would be able to get that generation built in time to deal with those two factors. Now, unfortunately, things have gone the wrong way. The gas project appears to be deferred, and these two factors have moved ahead in time. They've, they've come up and caught us. So... What I'd like to do is just talk for a minute or two on where where we expected energy prices to be and where they ended up. And this this really just shows the basic sources that we have and what we expected energy prices to be and where they ended up. Point La Pro was a little bit higher. Now, the total cost was about on budget, but it didn't produce as much energy. And that's the problem with Point La Pro. The total costs tend to remain fixed, so if it doesn't produce as much energy as you anticipate, your unit prices go up. And the problem is you have to then replace the energy with energy down here, the system purchase. So the unit cost went up primarily because it was out of service for longer than they had anticipated. Dalhousie was pretty much right on budget. We, we think that that's as close as we're ever going to get. Uh, this is the the component of our energy. This is that uh, 63, uh, about 60 percent of our energy supply uh, is this energy, this system purchases, and this is the stuff that is exposed to that uh, those factors that I talked about. And you can see our our expectations were that it would be just under $50 a megawatt hour when, in fact, it came in at $64 a megawatt hour or 30% higher. That's where rates have gone on PEI. 
although energy costs at the Charlottetown plant increased dramatically because that's, that's really for two reasons. One is oil prices. But the main reason is the fact that we never anticipated we would run Charlottetown to any degree at all. We just didn't anticipate it. And as I say, oil prices, which drove both Charlottetown and system purchases, were significantly beyond where we had anticipated they would be. This slide just shows the impact in terms of total dollars. And as I say, LePro, although it didn't produce as much energy as we anticipated, its budget was, was just about right on. Dalhousie was a little bit above budget, uh, and it, but it essentially produced approximately the, the amount of energy we forecast. The system purchases are where the big price increase came from. And they're, they are... That, that increase in, of $5 million comes from both the increase in the unit price of that stuff and the fact that we had to buy more of it because Point Lepro was out for longer. And we ended up, because of the, the prices that we were look, seeing on the system, generating significantly more energy in Charlottetown than we had anticipated. So all in all, last year we spent $7 million more than anticipated. And... From a, from a base of 63 million, that produced about an 11% increase in energy costs. So when we started out looking at where energy prices would go a couple of years ago, we had expected them to be very stable. And this is where they ended up. Now, last year, the 2.8% increase comes straight from an increase that we hadn't expected from NB Power. The basic rates are still set based on NB Power rates. They increased, and they will increase here by about 2% as well. So with the exception of those two increases from NB Power, the big culprit is that energy cost, which is up by about 11%. And it's really the, th the three issues that I talked about that have driven it there. The other question that we get asked quite a bit is about a regulatory environment. Maritime Electric is a monopoly here on PEI, and there's a couple of things that come with being a monopoly. Uh, one, is, one is an obligation to serve. We have no choice. If a customer comes and wants service, we can't look at a customer and say, boy, we're, not gonna, we're never going to make a nickel off you. Forget it. We have no, no choice but to serve that customer. Uh, that's, that's part of being a monopoly. The other part is that you're regulated in one form or another. Your prices have to be managed in some form. And before 1994, we were regulated on the basis of what's called cost of service. And a cost of service, in, in a cost of service environment, you periodically will have what's called a rate case in which you present evidence to the, to the regulator and what it's going to cost you to run the company, the various components of your expense, they're deemed either to be reasonable or too high or... I don't recall you ever saying they were too low, Anna. <laughs> One of the former regulators is here this evening. But uh, so you, you determine the cost of running the company, divide that by the amount of energy that was forecast to be sold, and in effect come up with the rates that were to be charged. So there was an independent tribunal that reviewed all the costs. In 1994, that changed. 
And we moved to a type of regulation that was called benchmark regulation. Not a particularly common form of regulation, but also not totally unheard of. Under benchmark regulation, rates are set based on some particular benchmark, and there can be various benchmarks. Some, some will be, for example, cost of living clauses, things like that. Um, the benchmark that was used here in 94 were NB Powers rates that they charged in-province customers. And our rates were set under that mechanism to be 110% of those rates. The other factor that was introduced in that legislation was one that we insisted be in there, and that was a clause that said that if rates in New Brunswick are subsidized so that the rates that are used to set the benchmark don't reflect NB Power's true costs, then we are allowed to adjust the rates when we calculate the 110%. We said there must be that in there. We need some protection. We can compete on a level playing field, but if rates are subsidized, we cannot compete with that. And that clause was introduced. Well, it worked well for a few years, but then and, – and, and when, we, when we went into the regulation, we looked at NB Power's books, and we, we could see where they were going, and we felt that if the company was to be managed properly – on a, on a reasonable basis, that rates would have to increase at a level that we thought we could live with here on PEI. Uh, but that didn't happen. For reasons that I, I, I really can't comment on, uh, that didn't happen, and NB Power began to run a series of losses. NB Power began to run at a loss and, uh, in effect, not make money. Uh, the debt that NB Power occurred on an annual basis was simply transferred over to the taxpayer. So we're into the subsidy situation. Uh, between 1996 and 2002, the total debt that, or losses that NB Power have incurred are $514 million, or half a billion dollars, just over half a billion dollars. I only go back to 1996 because they've done some restating of their, their uh, accounts that they didn't go back further than that, so I couldn't add it up. But there were – you can't be certain you're adding the same numbers together. But that was, the, that was the kind of thing that we were concerned about, that if rates in New Brunswick didn't reflect costs, then we just, we just couldn't compete against that kind of a benchmark. And if you do look at NB Power's uh, books and the province's books, you will see the, provi the provincial debt increases each year by the amount of the subsidy of NB Power. We couldn't compete with that, and so we did look at the clause that was written into the legislation that allowed us to adjust those rates. And we did a lot of work to try and make that adjustment. But the plain fact of the matter is we didn't have enough information. We could not produce a definitive calculation that demonstrated beyond reasonable challenges what the calculation should be for the new rates. It just would not work. Uh, in the absence of any adjustment, we, had, we were in serious difficulties. We, would, we, were, we, were, we were beginning to see losses incur, and we just wouldn't be able to raise the money to carry on, to, to, serve, carry, to continue serving PEI. So we talked to government and proposed that they modify the regulatory environment, that the, the benchmark regulation system just 
had broken down. It would not work any longer. And we proposed to them a couple of options that that had a regulatory model that would, would introduce an incentive mechanism to ensure that Maritime Electric had an incentive to keep rates as low as pos- possible and to operate as efficiently as possible, that there be a mechanism in there that whatever was used to adjust rates, Maritime Electric was not able to recover the full costs of, of, the, of increases. There were a few models that we looked at and talked about, any, but finally government came back with, with the model that's, that's now in place. And under the model that's now in place, without getting into the real nitty-gritty of the details, it really has two adjustment mechanisms. One is an adjustment mechanism that allows an adjustment on April 1st of each year in respect of energy costs that were incurred in the previous year. And the energy costs above $0.05 cents a kilowatt hour are, set, are, are calculated and 90% of those are set aside and are recovered in the following year. The 10% that is unrecovered is something that Maritime Electric and the shareholders have to swallow. And that's the mechanism that's working today, and it's that 90% recovery, which will result in us having to recover $17 million in the period April 1st of this year to March 31st next year. At the same time, um, we, we have, have absorbed... $3.3 million uh, in costs that we've spent that we just can't recover. That's the incentive mechanism to ensure that we keep our energy purchase costs as low as we possibly can. Well, you consider that to be fair to the stockholders that you're going to absorb that money? The $3.3 million you can't recover? Well, you have to go back to the fact that as a monopoly, you need to look at a way to set rates that presents a mechanism that satisfies customers that rates are both fair and as low as possible. And there are a whole bunch of ways you can do it. And and the traditional way is you have fairly long and involved and expensive uh, rate hearings. And uh, this is just another method. Not yet. <laughs> no. Um, why not? Why not? Be- because we have to look at whether or not we can compete with that. So, like I said, 90% of costs are passed through, 10% are not. Um, what's fair? I, I would suggest what's fair is something that's workable, that it gives the company significant incentive so that it will keep the costs down as low as possible, yet it still, if it works hard enough, is able to maintain a healthy financial balance sheet. And from my perspective, we've, we're pretty well at that balance now. When, if, if, you look at, if you look at the kind of return we have, it's, it's not the greatest in the world. But then energy costs on PEI are pretty high. If, if we were able to pull some rabbit out of a hat and drive costs way down, then both of us would benefit. So there's got to be a balance in everything. If it's not that, it's got to be another mechanism. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you and I seem to be on the opposite sides of the table. Yeah. Okay, let, let me make it clear that we are not incurring losses in total, but 
we do have to absorb some costs that we can't recover. Uh, does, does that mean, though, that the company is still losing money? No, not today. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a little, a little bit. Um, if we didn't have this mechanism, if we stayed under the old mechanism, we would be losing money. Yeah, we, we, we would have had no options. We, we were at the point where we had no options. Uh, simply put, the cash flow situation we were in was such that our bank loan was spiraling upward and upward, and we had no, there was no possibility of us ever getting it under control. We would have been shut down. So we've got a. We've <laughs> no, well, when costs go up, we're challenged. There, there is another mechanism in there, but it's, it's, it's takes a long time to to go through. Maybe we can talk about it afterwards. But, but, but I, I will talk to you about results. And everything's a balance. Uh, what is a reasonable return for, to the shareholder in a well-run company? And how should that be balanced against costs of energy in, in the service territory? Um, if you look at where we are today, and uh, I guess the best test of it is the result. I do think that it's resulted in energy costs as low as any operator could get them on PEI. And at the same time, our results are pretty good. We're not, we're not, leading, the, we're not leading the pack. Well, yes, we are. Yes, we are. We, Maritime Electric last year earned about $6.2 million. In terms of return on equity, that was about 9.4%. When you look at regulated utilities across Canada, that's kind of the bottom of the heap, but it's not, it's not way down in the basement. Transalta? I'm not sure what their ROE is these days. They, but they aren't a regulated utility any longer, though. So don't don't count them. But if you compare us to pipelines, uh, Amera are, are in a rate case now. Uh, they filed another rate case. Um, Newfoundland Power is in the 10, 10 plus percent range, but they're in another rate case, and their allowed return on equity is probably going to be decreased. But they're making good money. Look at, yeah, we'd like to be making more. No, I don't. I, I, I can't accept that they are. Okay. Okay. One of the things, though, that I do want to talk about is, yeah, you're, you're, there, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of talk about energy costs, and there are other costs in the system. When we go back to the pie chart, uh, energy costs represent about 63 cents out of every dollar. So, but, so there is a significant portion. And this, this chart gives you a bit of a breakout of what those other costs are and how they've changed over the years. Uh, what we show here is, is up here the, the cream and whatever that is, magenta color or something, are interest and depreciation. They're really costs that relate to the capital investment we've made in the province. And they have been on a cents per kilowatt hour basis relatively stable. Uh, there's been a small increase 
in interest, a small decrease in depreciation expenses, pretty well offset it. Those tend to be purely a function of the investments that we make in the province. And when I talk about, I'll talk about them a little, little bit longer, more in a minute, because we do make significant investments on an annual basis. These costs are the costs that I would like, I would like to be able to convince people are the ones that demonstrate how hard we're working. Uh, on PEI. These are what we call our controllable costs. Our transmission distribution costs, our, our meter reading costs, our customer service costs, all of those what we call controllable costs. Back in 1994, they amounted to 2.1 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, in 2002, that was 1.1 cents a kilowatt hour. They've virtually been cut in half. And that is, that's through initiatives and operations, or opportunities for efficiency that we've found in the system and costs that we've driven out. So that's where I think we get the demonstration that the incentive mechanism is there and it works, that we are able to to find those savings, and we have done that over the years. And like I say, the two components that remain relatively fixed relate to capital expenditures, and we do spend on an annual basis about $15 million each year uh, throughout the system. I'll just give you a couple of examples of, of where, we, where we spend that. Um, transformers, we spent uh, transformers and substations $4 million and 4.2 and $3.9 million in these two years as an example. For example, meters, we spend over a million dollars each year on, on meters. Line rebuilds, uh, there's four, $4 million in 2002, 2.7 in 2001, and so on. There's generation, various generation uh, capital expenditures that need to be made on virtually an annual basis. Well, we, even when we did see our return deteriorating and we were, we were getting into, our, into serious problems, we continued that because we knew that the necessity of continuing long-term investments in order to maintain the system healthy. And these are just a couple of examples of recent capital programs, that, uh, capital projects that we've done on the system. And what's the result been? We think that we've not only driven a lot of costs down, but we've improved the service. Uh, this is the regulatory requirement for reliability in the system. And these are, the these are the hours of outage uh, in, in each year. And you can see the dramatic increase, decrease with the exception of this last year, which, in which we've had some unusual weather patterns that, that hit us last year. But you can see the dramatic decrease. That, that's a function of continuing capital investment and continuing to look for better ways to operate the company that we have been able to, I believe, improve service through that same time frame. So just going back to where, where, where are the costs in the system? These are what I call those controllable costs, depreciation, interest expense, and energy purchase costs. So when we see the total line increasing in recent years, you can see that the, the big driver, uh, it's not good news, but the big driver is right there in the energy costs. And those are the ch costs that are most challenging for us. Uh, just by way of interest, one of the things that we've seen is there's been significant load growth in PEI. For, for a good part of the last decade, uh, energy consumption growth on PEI has led Canada on a provincial basis. 
and residential consumption here on a this is consumption per customer is since 1994 up 14%. That's a pretty significant increase. So where do we go from here? On the energy side, in terms of prices, well, the Mideast is certainly not calming down. I talked about or, or, or emulsion coming from Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela, in, in point of fact, Dalhousie plant isn't burning or emulsion these days. It's burning oil. Because of the unrest in Venezuela, shipments have been suspended, and we don't expect to see that back on our emulsion for a month or so. Uh, hopefully that will be resolved. But this capacity crunch, that's not going away. And where's, what's the future of Point Lepro? Point Lepro, although there are a lot of people who have strong feelings about it, it is the largest single unit on the system. And if you go back to that very complicated chart that I had and just look at the impact of taking 630 megawatts out of our system, it would be major. And uh, it, the future of Point Lepro is certainly is, is, is unclear at this point in time. Uh, the U.S. market impact, the Americans might not like us very much these days, but they're not going to stop buying our energy, and I can tell you that. One of the other issues that we have to resolve shortly is the loading on the submarine cables that uh, interconnect us with New Brunswick. Those cables have a nominal rating of 100 megawatts each. There's two of them for 200 megawatts. This red line is the system load uh, right there where it crosses the nominal capacity. That is about the year 2002. Uh, the peak load in December, which always occurs between 5 and 6 o'clock on the last Monday before Christmas, uh, exceeded the capacity of the two cables. Now, that in itself is not a major concern. Uh, the concern that it suggests is near, though, is what we call the single cable contingency limit. There are, there are two issues. One is that uh, beyond 200 megawatts, we have to supply the energy off our generators on PEI, regardless of the price. But the other issue is the loss of one cable. And the planning criteria we have is that we have to be able to supply the PEI load with one cable out of service. So if you compare the PEI load to a single cable plus our on-island capacity, you will see that that, will be, that that creates our single contingency limit. And that situation will occur out here based on this forecast in 2006. Well, from our perspective, if we anticipate that in 2006, it won't take much of a blip to, to move that one year one way or the other. Uh, so we believe that we have to have a resolution to this issue by 2005. And what's the resolution to that issue? There are only two ways to resolve that issue. Either increase the cable cap capacity, which is about a $25 million project, or build generation on PEI. And that is one of the real drivers behind us being very supportive of the government's uh, move to bring natural gas to PEI. Uh, that does two things. Gas-fired generation on the island does two things. It resolves this issue right here, and it also provides us what we believe is our least-cost energy source. 
uh, when we look at all of the other options out there, uh, what we call combined cycle gas-fired generation is what we believe to be the lowest cost source of energy on PEI. Unfortunately, uh, the future of that project at the moment is not totally clear either. But uh, this will not wait. This issue will need to be resolved within the next year or so, so that we ensure that we have uh, time to, uh, to deal with that issue. Um, stake in it? We're a, no. Let me, just let me see where I am here. Uh, let me run through a couple of slides, and that will pretty well wrap it up, and then I'll come to that because that's probably a good point to talk about that. Okay, so, whoops. That's going to run through it in a hurry. Like I said, the uh, peak load was exceeded, and that does signal that we need to make some decisions uh, with the load growth projections where they are. Uh, this 65% of our energy is under relatively short-term contracts. One of those contracts expires this year. We can extend it. Uh, the question will be pricing. And uh, availability, though, will become a very uh, concern in the near future. Uh, and we continue, as long as we buy that short-term energy on the mainland, we be continu continue to be exposed to those, those pricing issues. So what are our options? <coughs> there are a number of options. Uh, but when we look at them and balance them all, we do believe that, for example, wind will have a, a role to play in the, in the energy supply in the island. Uh, for some technical reasons, it's difficult to get it past 15%, we believe, but we do believe that that is, that is achievable, technic both technically and economically. Um, but we do think natural gas is probably our best, our best option available from our perspective. What's our role in it? You have to divide the natural gas project into really three components. One is the the, the producing field. The next is the pipeline company, and the next is the end user. Uh, the pipeline company would be Maritimes and Northeast. They're the company that owns the main pipeline that ships it down to, to the U.S. Uh, producer, depending on what field it is, but for example, Deep Panook and Canis, the producer, they, they own the product, we buy it from. The pipeline company is simply the shipper. We would say to the pipeline company, we've bought 10 million cubic feet per day of gas uh, that's going to be put in your pipeline at Goldboro. We want it delivered in Charlottetown. They'd say, fine, sign here. Here's the shipping charges. Uh, we would be just the buyer of the gas, one of a number of buyers of gas in the island. Uh, we would buy it and use it in our generation. That, that's our role in the project. We'd build the generation to do it. That's about it. So that's where we are. Um, there are some significant questions that I think we as, we, we as islanders have to answer in the near future. Uh, time is marching on, and they will have to be answered. Uh, but there are no easy answers. But uh, So if, I, if anybody has any questions, I'll see if we can 
carry it on from there. Uh, no, I don't think it is. But I'd have to have a look at your calculation to determine what it would be precisely. It will be about uh, probably 15 in that order. 15. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 25, whatever that would be. Well, there's where I disagree with you. You don't see them paying that. If 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 they paid that, there'd be no loss at the bottom of the income statement. The five hundred million dollar loss you had there. How much of it was the LePro write down? LePro write down was about four hundred million. Yeah. No, they had they've had losses more than that. It, I think the, the pro write-down was 425, but anyway, so so about 100 million. But what can, some of the things like uh, New Brunswick Power Company, uh, Ontario Power Company, Quebec Power Company, and Manitoba, and Newfoundland Hydro, not Newfoundland Power, yeah. Newfoundland Hydro, they're Crown Corporation, and yep. they pay no income tax. That's right. Yep. To the now, that's a combination of federal and provincial income tax. Two years ago, there was a program in place that uh, the federal government, the taxes were rebated back to. Why isn't that program still? Like, like I look at ourselves competing against Ontario, Quebec, and all those provinces, and seeing that they're crown corps, they don't pay any income tax. And we, on yeah. others, because we have a private company, pay five or six million dollars a year income tax. The thing you're referring to is an act that was called the Public Utilities Income Tax Transfer Act, PUIDA. Uh, it was an act in which the federal government agreed to rebate, I believe it was 95% of all the income tax that was paid by uh, investor-owned utilities back to the provincial governments. The reason I understand that that was enacted, and I don't know because it was in there for a long time, was to create a level playing field between provinces that had both investor-owned and crown utilities because the crowns, like you say, don't pay any income tax. I understand the reason they canceled it was because the federal government simply looked at all the provinces that they were rebating it to and said, well, none of you are using it to uh, reduce electricity prices, so what's the purpose of giving it back to you? You're just taking it into general revenue, so we're not going to bother with that anymore. That they, the provinces weren't using it for the purpose for which the federal government thought they introduced it. So, so you're saying if we went back and promised the federal government that we'll give it back to the rate 
possibility we could get that back. I would never promise what a politician might do. No, but I mean, if, if, if the commission... No, I... No, you want, you want my honest opinion? No. Puida is dead and buried. It's because never coming back. I feel unfair because it, it's Ontario ratepayers are getting a good deal because of paying no federal income tax. Well, actually, in Ontario... Now, under the restructured environment, uh, most of the most of the utilities in Ontario are owned by, or, or most of the utilities are owned by municipalities. The ones that are municipally owned are being assessed a fee equivalent to income tax that they will be, have to pay to on, the the government of Ontario. So they're being put in that position. I'm not sure it was so that they would be on an equal footing with the rest of us, but. That's, but that that fee is in there. But it's still about federal income tax. No, no, it's going to the provincial government. Yeah. Sorry. That is, that's one of the the options that we're we're seriously looking at. Yeah. Yeah. There there are there are a lot of benefits to to that plan, and that's that's one that we're very seriously looking at. Uh, no. One of the let me just comment on Point Lepro. The they they did initially, I think, plan to take the unit out. Of service, for, I think it was 18 months to do the rebuild, uh, to do the the life extension. I don't think that's their plan now. I think they're they haven't come up with a new plan. But I my guess is that if the life extension goes ahead, it will be through seri a series of uh, projects that will be done on an annual basis during normal annual outages. But I I don't know. But but I agree with you that. We need to make a decision, and we need to make it fast, and that that is an option that gives us the most flexibility and answers most of the questions that we have to, to deal with. Okay. Yeah. What's the expectation with uh, the natural gas on the island itself? Like, I really am not uh, <laughs> an expert in that at all. Let me let me just tell you everything I do know, and that's not going to take too long. Um, Meteor Creek, I'm not aware whether or not they are going to do any additional drilling. Uh, Raleigh, I know, did uh, abandon one well. They announced it just this week. They do have another well that they're going to drill, and uh, 
I guess they're still they're still optimistic. Um, corridor resources. We were talking with them. Uh, I was talking with them just late last week, and they indicated that they would be uh, drilling again in Cavendish probably this fall. Uh, they drilled a well there a few years ago, but I think they concluded they used the wrong drilling technology, that uh, that was one of the serious problems, so they're going to use a different drilling technology. But probability of success, I don't have a clue. I asked them how much... Uh, if I, w One thing I did ask, and I don't know, I guess this is public information because he told me, I said, uh, if, if uh, it came through as you hope, how much gas would you have there? And he said uh, a trillion cubic feet, which is a lot of gas. And I asked, at what rate would they be producing it? And he said, ideally, at about 100 million cubic feet per day. Now, the whole SOE project these days is running at anywhere from 350 to 550 million cubic feet per day. So that's a big field. That they're, you know, that, that's what's in their vision. But probability of success, I have no idea. I I don't know. I just don't know. Anna. Um, there's a lot of a lot of points and a lot of questions in there. Let me try and see if I can come to a bunch of them, cover a bunch of them. Back uh, in the time you refer to, yeah, we we ran that program we called Beat the Peak. We dropped that program. We dropped it in 1994 because once the regulations changed, the benefit of that program switched from benefiting the customers to benefiting the shareholder. So we didn't think it was a reasonable thing to do, to try and encourage people to change their behavior simply for the benefit of the shareholder. So we dropped it. 
So why didn't we pick it up back when the regulations changed again? Um, the reason is that the marketplace has done some strange things. And back in those days, for example, when we used to have to buy system capacity to meet our, our peak load, it cost, I think, $132,000 per megawatt year. That, pr that price today is uh, in the $30 range. It, it's, it's just plunged. And there are serious questions about whether there will be a capacity market anywhere in the future at all because of all of the restructuring. The prices, the only price you pay for is energy now in the open market. So without a price signal, it's difficult to justify that program, that kind of a program. There's no question, though, that energy that, that is burned at time of system peak is the most expensive energy we have. But in terms of if you're looking at it from an environmental perspective, there's not a lot of difference between peak load and off-peak load in terms of environmental impact. Yeah. The growth in consumption, can you sort of characterize where that has come from, or has it sort of been generally profitable? Uh, the, the, the chart I showed you, was uh, specifically for residential customers. And uh, it, it's difficult to say precisely where that growth has come from. One of the things, though, that I, I can comment on is that the trend was, was just the reverse. In the late 80s and early 90s, the trend was downward. Consumption per customer dropped. And it, it, it peaked, or it, it, it valleyed out, it bottomed out about uh, 94, and then it, is, it started back up. Why is that? I think the reason is that in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a new generation of appliances with significantly improved efficiencies that were introduced to the market. And as those began coming into the market, consumption per customer came down. And it was more than enough to offset new, new appliances, additional appliances that came into the, into the house. But after seven or eight years, uh, the market became pretty well saturated. So most appliances are now at that, that higher level of efficiency. And so the growth then that was masked by this, this efficiency now begins to surface. In other words, every new appliance you add will now add to the consumption instead of some new appliances would, would decrease your consumption. But if you look back, you know, I, I would, and we haven't done a, what we call an appliance saturation survey for a couple of years, but uh, the last few we did, you could see very significant trends in things like how many televisions in a house, uh, VCRs, things like that, that they would go from 2% to virtually 50 to 80% within a few years. And there's still, I think, a lot of that going on. And a lot of those appliances are fairly energy intensive. A lot of the, the instant-on appliances, uh, instant-on means always on. Uh, they really are always on behind the, behind the screen, for example. Uh, most people leave a computer on. 24 hours a day rather than rebooting and going through all that song and dance. Uh, so there are a lot of things that I think are behind it. We're saying like 
right? Like we seem to have our fingers crossed to strike a gas in PEI. That, that's our energy policy. No, I, I have, I didn't mean to imply that. No, I, I've, I've been talking with them, and we've said that we're happy to talk to you if you deliver gas, but no, that's not, we're not. Well, that's that's the comment I was I was responding to there, that effectively we either either have to build generation on PEI, and the only effective alternative fuel is is oil, whether it's heavy oil or light oil, or we have to build additional cable capacity, and continue to rely on the mainland. The problem with relying on the mainland is that nobody's got any plans to build generation on the mainland right now. Nova Scotia and New Brunswick have just got no plans on the books. So we don't have any assurances there. So we're really starting to look pretty limited, uh, like we're going to have to depend on our own resources, which means on-island generation. What we're saying is that that is within our control. From our perspective, if gas were available, it would really fit in well with it. But, that, but it is a default option that we can control. Well, again, it depends on the price of it, uh, but all in with the capital costs and all of that, uh, gas, assuming it's, say, $4 per million BTUs, which is the normal, where I think most people expect the price to be, uh, would be 5.5 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, based on oil, it depends whether it's heavy oil or light oil, and again, what the price of oil is it would probably be 6 to 6.5 cents a kilowatt hour. That's our, that would be our number one option. But the thing you have to understand is the generator that you would build would be virtually identical. In fact, the specific unit that we were looking at has got uh, what's called a manifold for gas and a manifold for oil. You can do online. You don't even have to shut the thing down to switch fuels. So we'd, we'd build, this, build the unit that would be capable of burning either fuel. But the plant in Nova Scotia, they want to just naturally cross. Yeah. It's natural gas and oil. Yeah. And, and are they burning oil now and selling their natural gas to the states? They can make more money than Um They do that quite often. They, they will look at uh, whether it's cheaper to actually burn the gas or whether it's cheaper to remarket the gas and burn oil. And... And uh, it changes. One day they'll be doing one thing, one day they'll be doing, they'll be doing the other. So if Media Creek finds, or Double Down finds gas here, they're going to look for the American market too then. So like, if I own Double Down, I wouldn't say I'm going to get the PEI at a cheap rate. Um, that, the answer to that question is, to give you a complete answer, is really long and involved. But to give you the short answer, uh, the principle that we have used is that we should pay the same price that those exporters get at the border. We should pay no more than the export price for gas. So you take what they get for it in Boston, and back out what it costs to ship it from the Boston to the border, and we should be able to pay the border price. Uh, whether whether or not you have to de- rely on uh, regulatory purposes, a regulatory mechanism to get that deal, or whether you can negotiate it, 
uh, will depend on your negotiating skills. That's a double talk answer. <laughs> Sorry, Eric? Um, the, the economics of a pipeline are simply dependent on the amount of gas that's shipped on the pipeline. Uh, the pipeline company has a lateral policy in which it doesn't work precisely this way, but the effect is, is approximately for every million cubic feet per day you contract a ship, they will invest $1.3 million in the lateral. So obviously the more gas you're consuming, the more they will invest in the pipeline. Depends what the cost of the pipeline is, and I've heard a lot of estimates about the cost of the, of the pipeline. Uh, but obviously, the more gas that's that's built, the less cost the pipeline would be to the province. Uh, and that's one reason why the province, when Maritime Electric, I, to to make your answer, make my answer a little more complicated to what's Maritime Electric's role in the project. We are partners with Amera who are also interested in building gas-fired generation. And we would, we would partner in a, a larger plant of which we would only take a portion of the output for PEI. And uh, the benefit of that larger plant is that it, it creates a lot more potential for uh, the pipeline being paid for by, the, by, by Maritimes Northeast. If your question is simply, uh, do we need to build a pretty darn big generator to get a pipeline? The answer is yes, yeah. Uh, how much generation can PEI absorb? Right now, uh, if the plant was built in 04, we think that uh, something between 50 and 100 megawatts. 100 megawatts would be a reasonable thing to contract for on a long-term basis, uh, and, uh, but the balance of the plant would be for, for merchant capacity for export. For gas, we, you don't contract for gas in megawatts. It'd be a million cubic feet per day. Um, we've, with Amera, we've put in a total number, and uh, we haven't even tried to divide it up between the two of us yet. Oh, I, a new cable would be about uh, 25 million. We estimate and gas. Gas pipeline would estimates I've heard are anywhere from 50 to 100 million. So it's even at the low end, it's double the cost of the. the pardon me. Um, that, then you have yeah. If if, if the pipeline isn't here, uh, if if you have to pay for the cost of the. I'm sorry. Because if, yeah, it depends on who's paying for the pipeline. So you see, the lateral policy might not make a lot of sense. The lateral policy is a good policy. The lateral policy is a policy that was adopted by the National Energy Board 
when they approved the original pipeline construction. And it's, it's a bit of a unique policy. And they say right in their decision that it's a policy that's designed to encourage the development of natural gas availability through the Maritimes. So uh, the way it works is the, the pipeline company will invest in the pipeline an amount up to the point where his investment will not increase what the tolls would otherwise be. That's what it is. It's, it's a development incentive policy. So if there is sufficient gas that the lateral can be built under that policy, then it only makes sense to bring it over as gas rather than electricity because there are obvious side benefits to other than electricity. That we have gas available for commercial and industrial purposes. Well, oh, yes, it can. Significantly, yeah. Yep. The benefits are significant over bunker. Yeah. Uh, Natural gas prices are are certainly volatile. Uh, It's increased. In fact, yeah, it recently uh, virtually tripled, but then it came back down within a few days. Typically, the pricing mechanisms work on a on a monthly pricing basis. So, what you the prices that you see quoted as uh, dramatic increases and decreases are spot prices for daily gas, and the amount of gas sold on that basis is is very very small by by comparison to the total amount of gas. But prices pricing virtually all gas is sold based on prices that are tied to the New York Mercantile Exchange price. And that's a price that will vary over time. There are a bunch of options you can can use to manage that. In some cases, you will accept some exposure to it. Uh, In other cases, you can buy options that will fix the price so that uh, they're financial instruments. So that if the price increases, you pay the increased price, but the person you bought the instrument from will compensate you for it. Uh, they, they, that's a price stabilizing mechanism. So there are ways to do it. The other mechanism is the one that uh, somebody mentioned a few minutes ago, and that is the fact that if you're capable of using dual firing, uh, you can actually make a lot of money during prices of high gas by switching to a lower price fuel and remarketing your gas. So there are a lot of ways to manage that issue that you hear in the public. It's not just as simple as the price is shot through the roof.
You mean are we going to see increases next year the same magnitude? The the price change next year, and I call it a change, not necessarily an increase, will reflect what prices are this year. Uh, will prices be dramatically higher than they were last year? I don't know. I can tell you that for the month of January, for example, our energy purchase costs were, were just about identical to, to, the month, to the same month the previous year. Uh, February was higher. March will probably be a little higher, uh, but they're not. They're not of that magnitude. What will prices be for the balance of the year? I don't know. We, uh, this is a problem that Prince Edward Island has had for a long time because we have no natural resources of our own. Oh, we are. We, we've... Uh, just about got ready to go a proposal or a request for proposals for the uh, supply of the, the equipment. But we need to make that. The problem, the problem we have is that there are no cheap options out there. It's what the least cost option is. We, we will not see prices dramatically fall, but we need to get price stability. One way to get price stability is to make a fixed investment of our own so that we're not so that we can make that fixed investment and it's fixed over time. Like a big a portion of the cost of energy, for example, out of that unit that, that Richard was talking about, uh, about 50% of that is a fixed cost. The other part is fuel. So as fuel prices vary, uh, that 50% will vary. But 50% can remain fixed. So that's one of the benefits of, of building generation of our own, that we haven't been able to get that by continually, continually buying on the mainland. But no, if, if there were easy answers, we, we probably wouldn't be here tonight, is, is unfortunately what the reality is. That's right. We think we need to build generation on PEI. Sure. Um. I said between 50 and I forget what, 80 or 100, I don't know. I've, I've heard estimates all over the map. But, yeah, that, uh, that would be a pipeline that would uh, be both Summerside and Charlottetown. What's the pipeline to board? How much is the pipeline to board? And a small enough one to run your plant and your plant home. From Northeast Pipeline that's running through. I, I, I don't know. Um, If you're doing that, no, it wouldn't be. I doubt that it would be, because. Yeah, we have looked at. Yeah. Yeah. 
wake the board, and we got the transmission lines to Charlottetown. And that's cheaper than a $25 million pipeline or a new cable. That's, let's take a look at that. Well, I'm, I'm afraid that it wouldn't be cheaper. That the, the incremental cost of a bigger pipeline, whether it's four inches or six inches, is not significant. So, but but building it just just to Borden, there there would be a significant saving. But I've got a question whether that's a logical decision from from a social perspective on PEI uh, that you build build just supply gas to Borden. That. Uh, but there, are, but there are other options for the use of gas. I think you'd, you'd see some very unhappy commercial industrial customers with that scenario. That's, that's my guess. This is, this is not an issue that I have looked at, by the way. That, that, that's an issue that uh, government are managing with... Cavendish Farms, though, are a big user of... Uh, of fuel oil. You can't you can't replace you can't you can't replace that. No, but but Cavendish Farms, regardless of how much wind power is built on PEI, will still have the same need for fuel oil. They have boilers for cooking. Yeah, yeah. So they they will continue to need that. Uh, we've, we've looked at that. Uh, no, you can't. That's the problem. You need to build about a 50 or 60 megawatt gas turbine to provide enough steam to provide the steam load. We're looking at units in the 50 megawatt size. Yeah, that's an option, but not if not if we take Richard's solution and there's no pipeline there. I don't know. Look, that's I'm trying to tell you that's not an issue I've looked into. I have looked at it from the electrical generation perspective and say, if the gas is available, what is the impact on electrical costs? That's 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 what Maritime Electric is concerned with. Uh, No, the the existing production you could not buy without paying the shipping charges right to Boston, which make it too expensive. So we can't use the gas. No, that's why that's why we're so interested in increment new production. Where? Either either on PEI or offshore. No, it's not. Well, there's. Quite a few wells going to be drilled this summer. Yeah. Just going back to what we were talking about earlier, I didn't quite understand the, uh, the peak, the peak uh, yeah. situation. And I guess it's sort of a two-part question. Is there a situation uh, in which it, it's beneficial to maritime electric to have consumption drop financially? It would depend on uh, which customers reduced. Some customers we probably supply at a loss. <laughs> so yeah, there are there are some customers that it would. But right across the board, generally speaking, 
Uh, from Maritime Electric's perspective, no, it would not be beneficial because all you have is fixed costs that you have to spread over fewer kilowatt hours. So it would tend to put an incremental increase. Uh, a customer's total bill would be less, but uh, your rate would be a little bit higher. We'd have to increase the rate a little bit, but your total bill would be less. Okay. And I guess the second part of my question is the graph, the, the one that you characterize as being the complicated graph. Yeah. That was Maritime's wide budget. Yes. Uh, does, it, does that mean, or can I take from that that if we, again, let's just say we reduced our consumption, that lowers the, the peak, the, the top line? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Does that mean that if we, if we all lowered our consumption, would we theoretically all pay less, or does the, the fixed cost part of it kind of there? Yeah, you, you see, what you avoid when you lower your consumption, once you've built the plant, once what, what you avoid is the incremental cost, not the full cost. Now, in many cases, a lot of the energy we buy uh, tends to be priced based on incremental costs. So f for us, we would see that benefit. But no, New Brunswick, who had made the investment, no, they would not but see that. Yeah. We're helping you amortize the cost of, of building capital projects. Yeah. The capital project cost doesn't change based on consumption. The raw fuel cost does. Generally speaking, if, 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 if you take the position that once you've built it, you've spent the money and you can't unspend it, yeah, you're right. The capital costs don't change as consumption goes down. You're right. Yeah. But the fuel cost will. Um, I'm not sure that I understand the scenario completely enough to <laughs> to agree with it one way or the other. <laughs> so, anything else? There's one more comment. Maritime Electric has $40 million in retained revenue. I will accept that, but I... I'll, I'll take it for what it's worth, for what you... As your, your return on investment is guaranteed at 11% after tax. No. 10% No. There is no guarantee. In, in, in the regulations and the act, there's no guarantee. No. It's a target. So the hearings that you just had or the filings you just made with IRAC, what are your returns next year going to be? What are your Probably nine and a quarter. Yeah. Which is really about 16% before tax. Before tax doesn't make much difference to me because you've always paid tax. Yeah. But I'm saying, okay, if, if we went and got, like, I'm saying, why don't interest rates right now, long-term mortgage bond rates right now are at 7%, 8%. Why don't we convert some of that retained earnings into bonds and bring her down to 7%? The amount of financing you can do on debt is fixed by a number of things. 
Right now, about 60% of our capitalization is by debt. In fact, it's slightly over. Uh, the maximum we're allowed to do under legislation is 60%. In fact, our, our equity has to, according to, the, according to the legislation, we have to keep a minimum of 40% common equity. Uh, right now, we're below that. We've been below that uh, for the last couple of years, just simply because energy costs have 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 driven that down. Uh, so number one, it's uh, the amount of debt you can put on is capped. The second part, though, is the amount that uh, lenders will will let you put on. Uh, the way we finance our 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 capital is is in part through debt. The debt is secured by what's called a first mortgage bond, same as any house mortgage. And in that first mortgage bond, uh, we are required to maintain what's called interest coverage levels. And we could not maintain those interest coverage levels without, uh, if, if we increase the amount of debt on our, on our books, we, our interest coverage would go down dramatically. Uh, we would have to, in effect, in effect, increase rates just to keep the interest coverage up, which would drive the return on equity way back up. So there's, an, there's what's called an optimum capital structure in a utility because as soon as you get too much more debt on there, you get into interest coverage problems and the price of the debt will go up. Uh, so you, you, you can always you try and optimize it between the amount of equity and the amount of debt. Uh, and it's typically for a utility, it's in the 40 to 45% range. Bob, did you? Not at this stage. We, uh, as you're probably still aware, <laughs> we've, we've kept pretty good uh, close eye on the condition of the cables, and uh, our loading on them has been extremely conservative since they were originally installed. So as far as we can tell, the condition of them is still, in terms of aging, uh, very, very good. So we haven't looked at it from that perspective yet. It would probably be in the order of 200 megawatts under that. No, um, it flows both ways. <laughs> what, what you really get is a net flow. Uh, the effect, w but, but you can visualize the effect by assuming it flows both ways. Thank you very much. I know I haven't answered all your questions because uh, we don't have the answers to all your questions, but uh, I hope if at least we've been able to make some of the, the issues clear, it will help in your thinking and uh, perhaps give us a better opportunity to find good answers for all of us for these questions. Thank you. <laughs>